Most people, it seems to me, listen to songs just for the music. They pay very little attention, it seems, to, to the lyrics. That's not me. I'm always trying to understand what the songwriter wants to say. So to kick us off this morning, as we start thinking about relationships and our search for connection, I'm going to invite you to engage in a little bit of cultural analysis with me. So we're going to play a song. Uh, it's a song from a few years ago. We're going to listen to it together. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. What's the fear expressed in the song? And then what's the solution that's offered in the song? What's the fear and what's the solution? And you'll get a chance to discuss it after the song with a few people around you. So here we go. The lyrics will be up on the screen. Okay, so I'm going to invite you to have a chat in groups of three just around you. What's the fear and the solution in that song? Some of the lyrics you can find actually in your booklet on page 16. So have just chat two minutes. What's the fear and the solution? Okay. Well, what's the fear? What's the fear? I think the fear is insignificance in the face of oblivion. That's the fear, that I'll be insignificant in the face of oblivion. The solution in the song, the solution is that I matter to someone else. I want to be somebody to someone. And the, as the lyricist actually says at one point, isn't that the same for everyone? Isn't that what we all want? We all live in a huge web of relationships. I'm a husband to Jenny. I'm a dad to my kids. I'm a son to my parents. I'm a brother to my siblings. I'm a citizen. I'm a shopper. I'm a regular at my local cafe. I'm an employee. I'm a Bible study member. I'm a friend on social media. I have relationships with people, relationships with institutions, and to the world around me. My life, your life, is a huge web of relationships. Now, amidst that huge network of relationships in which we find ourselves, I think that song touches on something that we all share. Now, I'm on page 16 of your Ancon book. You can follow along there. First of all, we want to be known. Not merely that people know our name or know a little bit about us. We want to be known by someone at a deep level. We want to be understood. And frankly, not just understood, because we all live actually in the horror of the thought of someone really understanding who I am and turning away as a result. I want to be understood and accepted. In fact, not just accepted, I want to be valued, even loved. But that's not all. We want to find our place. Where can I make a difference? Where can I make a meaningful contribution? Ideally, I'd love to be in the flow, you know, to be in the zone with what I do so that I can find a place where who I am and what I bring works seamlessly with the needs and the opportunities around me. Which leads me to the third point, we want to be authentic. We all fake it at times, but what we really want is to be free to be our true self, our real self. I want to be the true me, the inner me. And these days, that is regarded as the deepest and most fundamental challenge and also my most basic right to be truly authentic. The thinking goes something like this, if I can get me right, then all of my other desires and decisions will flow and come out right. But point four... The reality is we all experience challenge in all of these areas. All of our relationships have difficulties. 
whether that's relationship with other people or with institutions or with the created world around us. We want to be known, but sometimes understanding doesn't lead to acceptance and value, let alone love. We want to find our place, but instead of flow, we get struggle and tension. We want to be authentic, but then we're not really sure who the real me is. Our relationships cause us pain as well as joy. And sometimes, despite our longings for something better, our relationships are downright damaging and toxic. Well, what can we say about this situation? Well, you're at an EU conference, so it's no surprise we're going to turn to the Christian Bible for answers. Christian Bible is the word of the one true living God to enlighten us, to enlighten our darkness, bring us comfort and hope in the reality of our experience. And the centre of the Bible's testimony is the man Jesus. What does he have to say about our search for connection? Well, Jesus presents a liberating counter-viewpoint. Our fundamental relationship is not with ourselves. Our fundamental relationship is with the one true living God who made us, sustains us, loves us and has a plan for us. See what Jesus says there on page 17 from John 17 verse 3. He says, this is, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Think about that for a moment. The core connection, the fundamental relationship, which is the key to eternal life, is knowing God and his son Jesus. Your relationship with God and his son Jesus is not an optional extra that you can just add on to your otherwise full life. Your relationship with God and his son Jesus is the sole factor determining whether you have eternal life or not. As we read in 1 John 5, 11 to 12, And this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now this has implications for all of our other relationships. It explains why we find so much joy and pleasure in relationship because we've been created for relationship by God himself. Relationships are meant to be good, enriching, a source of joy. But it also helps us understand why even amidst good relationships, we can sometimes feel not fully known, not fully settled. It's because these other relationships were never designed by God to be ultimate or to be fundamental. He created you, first and foremost, for relationship with Him. Find a quiet moment, if you can, in the next 24 hours to read Psalm 139. You might just jot down the reference, Psalm 139. You'll be blown away by how intimately the one true living God knows you. No one else knows you or even can know you like he knows you. None of the other relationships you have were designed to be ultimate or fundamental. So when we neglect our relationship with the God who made and loved us, or when we don't give it a proper weight in our estimation, then we load up our other relationships with expectations that they were never designed to bear. Your parents will never fully understand you. I mean, you knew that already, right? But neither will your boyfriend or girlfriend. Neither will your marriage partner. 
Neither will your flatmates, your workmates, your dog. None of them will fully understand you. But we load up all of those other relationships with expectations that they were never designed by God to bear. That's why we end up dissatisfied. So Jesus points us in the direction of our fundamental relationship. But he also identifies the fundamental problem in all of our relationships. We've ignored God's word on how relationships work well, and so we've not kept to his way of relating. That rejection of God's word and his way is what the Christian Bible calls sin. This is not just a matter of being ignorant of God's advice or ignoring it by mistake. We ignore God's word and way because of a deep-seated prejudice against God or anyone else telling us what to do. We're committed to rejecting his word and way whenever it seems best to us to do so. We're so committed, in fact, to rejecting God and his word and way that the Bible calls us slaves of sin. And that's why all of our relationships experience difficulty, from small disappointments to, to very great evil. We are both the perpetrators and the victims of what happens when we reject God's word and his way. We damage ourselves and others and the world around us because we think we know what's best in these relationships and we reject God's word and way on the matter. So what is it we need? Well, we need a comprehensive solution to the sin problem because that's what's wrecking our relationships. So four aspects to this solution at the bottom of page 17. You might like to jot them down and they'll come up on the screen as well. First of all, we need enlightenment because really we don't know the best way to react in each of our relationships. We think we know what's best, but relationships are complex and we're a mess of our own prejudices and our shifting desires. But if we're honest, we actually need enlightenment to know the right way to live in each of our relationships so we don't keep mucking them up. Second, we need healing. We need healing from the damage rejecting God's word and way has done to our relationships. The scars from what others have done to us and the guilt from what we've done to others. From the damage done by institutions and by nations upon one another or by the damage we've wrought on the created world around us. The need for healing is immense. Jesus himself uses the healing image as you can see there on your page from Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. At some point, we're all sinners, rejectors of God's word and way. Jesus says we're sick. We need to be healed. And he's Dr. Jesus. But third, we need reconciliation. We don't just need healing from the damage done. We need to restore these, re these relationships. We need reconciliation. What do we need between Russia and the Ukraine? Or what do we need between China and Australia? Or the Taliban and the rest of the world? It's the same thing we need in our families. Or in our toxic workplaces. Or with First Nations people here in Australia. We need reconciliation. And reconciliation can never happen without justice. But if the fundamental problem in our relationships is that we've wrecked our relationship with God by ignoring his word and way, 
then fundamentally we need reconciliation with God. Because every time we wrong one another or the world around us, we wrong the God who created us and everything. So we need reconciliation, but finally what we need is liberation. Because think about it, even if we've got enlightenment, healing and reconciliation, because we are slaves to sin, we will just keep running down that same path of rejecting God's word and way all over again. What we actually need is an internal liberation that releases us from slavery to sin. And that's what Jesus says he can do. In John chapter 8, verses 24 and 26, there on your page, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus offers to set us free from that internal slavery to sin. So there is hope for our relationships. We can choose differently with his help. Because of Jesus, we can heed God's word and way. This is the good news of the Christian message. Enlightenment, healing, reconciliation, liberation is what Jesus makes possible in our relationships and offers it to the world. And that's what we're going to explore this week. And it's tied up not just with Jesus' teaching and example, it's tied up with what he has done and what he promises. And ultimately, it's tied up with who he is in himself. So, let's dive in. This morning, we're going to particularly think about how Jesus transforms our understanding of family. And we're going to hear a little bit more on the screen from the Bible about Jesus and family. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Mark 14 And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
and he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Again and again in the New Testament Gospels, Jesus is described as the Son. And, he, and the one true living God is described as his Father. You can see some of uh, those verses there on page 18. At Jesus' baptism, God's voice from heaven says, You are my Son. When Jesus prays, he addresses God as Abba, which was the Aramaic word a child would use to address their father. Aramaic was Jesus' heart language. It's the same word he would have used to address his earthly father, Joseph. And strikingly, Jesus teaches his disciples to address God as our father. God is not just father to Jesus, but to Jesus' disciples as well. And that's going to be key for us later this morning. But even more, Jesus doesn't reveal that God is father In Jesus the Son, we get to see and hear the Father. From John chapter 14, there on your page. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus is claiming there to be the full and complete revelation of the Father. If you've seen or heard from Jesus, then you've seen and heard from God the Father. But Jesus is not merely saying that he's the perfect representative of God, as though he was just the perfect spokesperson or agent. Jesus claimed to be something much more audacious, and it was what got him killed. He claimed to be one with the Father. That is, he claimed to be God himself. Have a look at John chapter 10. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of those do you stone me? 
We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So that raises all sorts of questions. Jesus reveals that God is Father and that he is the Son, but he also claims to be one with the Father, that is to be God himself. So what is God like? Well, have a look at some of the options on page 19. Let me talk you through them. In the first couple of centuries AD, there was a lot of debate amongst Christians about how the Bible answers this question of what God is actually like. And quite a few models that were suggested were rejected. Four of them are there on page 19. Tritheism is the belief that there is not, in fact, just one God, but three gods, Father, Son and Spirit. Modalism is the belief that there is just a single God, but that God remains hidden from us. Instead, that God appears to us as three characters or in three modes. He appears as the Father and as the Son and as the Spirit, but just how he appears to us, that's not how he is in himself. Arianism is the belief that the Father alone is not created and the Father is responsible for the creation of the Son and the Spirit. Hence, Arius made the claim, there was a time when the Son was not, because he was created at some point. And finally, what I call the tripartite God, which is, I think, how a lot of Christians think about God, that God is one, but in three bits. There's the Father bit, the Son bit, and the Spirit bit. And taken together, they constitute the one true living God. All four of those models are wrong. They're not right. They don't line up with the Bible. Well, why not? I'm going to give you a chance to discuss that together. So in groups of three or so where you're sitting, chat about what might be wrong with each of those models for the biblical picture of God. I'm asking you to think, why does each of those models fall short of what the Bible tells us about God? Put, put your heads together. You've got about three minutes. Okay. So I'll be completely honest with you, three minutes is not very long to reinvent hundreds of years of theological debate. So you did well, I'm sure. But in brief, the Bible is very clear that there is only one God, monotheism, one Godism. That's the Bible's position. So tritheism, that's out. If you want a sample Bible reference, look up Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, or Isaiah 45. 20 and 21, Isaiah 45, 20 and 21, or Mark 12, 29, Mark 12, 29. So, tritheism is out. The problem with modalism is that God says he's a God of truth. So, look up Isaiah 45, verse 19, Isaiah 45, 19. But in modalism, you don't get the real truth about God. You see how God presents himself to us, but what he presents is not who he is in himself. So it's a bit like a movie where the one actor plays numerous different roles in the same movie. Which one of them is the real actor? Well, the answer is none of them. Even when you put all the different roles together, you still don't know the real person who is the actor. If that's what God is like towards us, then we don't really know God. And then in what sense is he really a God of truth? The problem with Arianism is that the Bible clearly calls us to worship Jesus the Son, 
but it also clearly condemns worshipping created things. But in Arianism, the sun is a created being. So Arianism actually commits you to some form of idolatry. What about the tripartite God, that one God but in three bits? The problem here is a bit more profound because the New Testament teaches us that each of the Father, Son and Spirit is fully God. Not that each is just a bit of God. So, for example, Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So how then does that work? How can each of them be fully God and yet there's not one but three? And suddenly you go, well, now I don't understand the Trinity. Well, no, it's a hard thing to understand, isn't it? What is the one true God like? Well, I think the best way to talk about it is as a set of statements that we know to be true from the Bible, as you can see there on the box on page 20. God reveals himself through Jesus to be one God in three persons. Father, Son and Spirit, each fully divine in eternal ordered relationships of mutual love. As you can see there in the box, the Father is God, the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Bible is adamant from beginning to end, there is only one God, not three gods. Moreover, the Bible maintains a clear distinction between the persons. The Father does not become the Son. Nor do the Father or the Son become the Spirit, even though the Father and the Son are one and the Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Son and the Spirit of the Father. Yet, they are always clearly distinct. Finally, the Bible distinguishes the Father, Son and Spirit, not just by their names, but by the way they relate to each other. So, for example, the Son comes from the Father. He's always the Son who issues from the Father. Not at some particular point in time, that was Arius's heresy, but forever and always, the Son is the Son who comes from the Father. The way the early Christians put it, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Similarly, the Spirit is distinguished from the Son and the Father in the way He relates to them. Unlike the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But the most important thing to say about the relationship of Father, Son and Spirit is that they are relationships of love. Jesus tells us, the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And the Spirit's primary fruit, as the Spirit of the Father and the Son, is love. And that gives us an insight into why relationships are so important to us. God is in himself relationships of love as Father, Son and Spirit. He has always existed as three persons in love for each other. You might have seen that NASA has um, produced pictures of their new space telescope. There's images of galaxies that they're sharing online now, galaxies that are billions of years old. I'm, it blows them. I, I, I can't comprehend billions of years old, but photos of galaxies that are billions of years old. Well, get this. Love is older than the universe. Before the Big Bang, 
before the existence of any of those galaxies, before the existence of anything at all, love existed between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's why relationships matter so much to you and to me. Because the Bible tells us we've been made in God's image. He is relationships of love. And that's in whose image we've been made. Broughton Knox, in a quote there on your page, puts it like this. He says, ultimate reality, that, that is God, is good, personal, relational. And these relationships are other person-centered, as all good, true relationships must be. This is the character of God, and this is how creation has been made. We have been created in God's image for relationship, and this relationship must be other person-centered. So here's the insight. Your longing to be known, to be understood and accepted and loved, that is entirely right, because you have been created in God's image for just such a relationship. But God doesn't just leave you hanging out there with those longings. Through Jesus, he gifts to you the relationship that satisfies those longings. So section three of your outline, adoption by the Father in the Son through the Spirit. Jesus offers you a place in God's own family. Look at the two passages there on page 21. First from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Through entrusting ourselves to Jesus, what the Bible calls faith or believing in his name, something profound happens. We... In, doing, in, in committing ourselves in trust to Jesus, are born again. We're reborn spiritually as a new creation, as a child of God, a member of his family. Notice how Jesus puts it when he speaks with Mary, the first eyewitness to his resurrection. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus opens up this new way for us to relate to the one true living God. God is not just Jesus' father, he's now the father of all of Jesus' disciples as well. He's my father and your father, says Jesus. So how does that work? How is that possible? Well, the way the Apostle Paul explains it in some of his letters is we are adopted into God's family through union with Jesus. Because we're united to Jesus, the Son, we wonderfully share his relationship to God as Father. His Father really does become our Father too. You might like to, if you've got your Bible with you, open up to Galatians chapter 4. Got your Bible there? Or flick it up on your phone. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Galatians 4, 4 4-7, Paul writes, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, Paul uses a technical word there 
that would have been well understood by the Galatians that he was writing to. It was the legal word used in that culture that you used when you adopted someone as your heir who would inherit your estate. So if you know your ancient history, that's what Julius Caesar did with Octavius, who later became Emperor Augustus. He adopted him into his family. He became his heir. And that, the legal word used for that is the word that Paul uses here. It's what, that's what God has done to us. He's adopted us into his family such that we are now his legal heirs. Paul continues there in verse 6, because you are his sons, and it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, because he's talking about the legal definition here, we are all now heirs. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I've tried to represent it there in the diagram on your page. Jesus is the son who has a relationship as son with God, his father. But in God's kindness, through faith in Jesus, we share in Jesus' spirit, the spirit of the son. And we are united by that spirit to Jesus. And so as a result, we share in his relationship with God, the father. His father becomes our father. Adoption is never a small deal. There's probably some people here today who live as part of an adopted family. I have several friends who were adopted as children, and I know several people who've adopted children themselves. Adoption is completely life-changing. As a person who was adopted, you genuinely have a new family. But adoption is not just the experience of a few people here today. Adoption is what's happened to every single one of us if we've put our trust in Jesus. In his great kindness, the one true living God has adopted you into his family. Jim Packer puts it this way, very strikingly, in his classic book, Knowing God. It's there on your page. He says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. Adoption, though, is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. Closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. That through trust in Jesus you can be part of God's family really is an amazing blessing. Just think about some of these gold-plated truths that I've listed there for you on page 22. As a result of being adopted into God's family, you are known. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus gets you like a shepherd who knows his sheep. You are not a surprise to Jesus. 
He's not shocked by your secrets. He knows them all. How well does he know you? Well, he says here, he knows you with the same depth of knowledge that he and the Father know each other. So you are fully open to him. And you know what? He loves you. He doesn't love you blindly or theoretically. He loves you knowingly. So much so that he joyfully laid down his life for the sheep. And because you are now in his family, the Father loves you with the same love he has for Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John 14. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. I'm not sure what your earthly family is like, but I know every parent makes mistakes, and some do far worse than just make mistakes. But you do have a heavenly Father who loves you with the same unending love that he has for Jesus, his son, because he's adopted you into his family and you share that place with Jesus, the son. The third blessing of being adopted into God's family is that you are never alone. Again, in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. God the Father and God the Son take up residence in you by his Spirit. So if your friends bail on you or your family reject you, you are not alone. You are never alone because God's Holy Spirit is in you, helping you to know Jesus and hold on to him helping you to walk in his ways, helping you to cry out, Abba, to God your Father, even in your darkest moments. And a final gold-plated truth of being in God's family is that you are secure. This time from John 10. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if you are following Jesus the shepherd, you are completely secure. No matter what dangers, what troubles, even what tragedies, your final destination, your ultimate security is locked in. No one is going to be able to snatch you out of Jesus and his father's hand. Now that doesn't mean a trouble-free life. It didn't mean that for Jesus and it won't mean it for us. But it does radically shift how I face trouble. Because we spend a lot of life worrying. What about this? What about that? We're worried about what happens if we don't secure this or that for our future selves. But Jesus has secured an eternal resurrected future in the new creation for you. With no more crying or tears or pain. Now that fact doesn't remove the challenges I might have to face today. But it does put them in a completely different light. These troubles, no matter how hard... They will pass. They are temporary. The secure future Jesus has for me, that is eternal. These struggles will one day be forgotten. And the joy of seeing Jesus face to face in the new creation, that will last forever. 
So here's the key insight. When God adopts you into his family through faith in Jesus, he meets our deepest needs to be known and accepted and valued and loved, to be secure, not abandoned. All the other relationships that we have, even when they're at their very, very best, they are just just imitations and reflections of the relationship we have with God our Father through Jesus the Son. And that wonderful adoption of us, that adoption of you, if you have faith in Jesus into his hand, that is worth celebrating. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pause, we're going to sing celebrating together, and then we're going to come back and think about what does this adoption mean for our relationships with each other. So get ready to sing. Adoption into God's family doesn't just bring you into a new relationship with God as your father. It brings you into a new family of millions of sisters and brothers. So have a look at the incident recorded for us in Mark chapter 3 there on page 23. This is Jesus at some of his mic-dropping best. We read there, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Boom. Okay, maybe you didn't get the boom, but that was definitely a boom right there. If you understand the importance of biological family in Jesus' first century culture, or any culture for that matter, you'll hear just how offensive Jesus' comments were and are. Jesus is redefining the place of biological family. And in first century Jewish culture, like many collectivist cultures, family is the top priority. Jesus redraws the family relationship. Who are his mother and brothers? Jesus looked at the circle, seated around him and said, here are my mother and sisters and brothers. So when you come to faith in Jesus and are adopted into his family, your fellow disciples are your new family. What does that mean for your biological family? Well, we'll explore that when we get to Wednesday morning. But if someone was to ask me, Rowan, who's your family? My answer is, My first family, it's you. Here are my mother and sisters and brothers and sons and fathers. And the people gathered around the Lord Jesus, that's my first family. Now that has some big implications. What does that mean for my biological family? We're going to think about that Wednesday morning. What does it mean for our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, one of the most important of those is Philadelphia. Not the fifth largest American city of that name, nor the cream cheese. Philadelphia means 
to love like siblings, to love as sisters and brothers. That is the word in the New Testament used to describe our love for one another within God's family. Have a look there on page 23 from Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another, loving as brothers and sisters. That's that one word, Philadelphia. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let Philadelphia continue the love of brothers and sisters. If we're family, which we are because of Jesus, then we have to love like it. What does that look like? Well, the rest of the New Testament gives us a pretty good picture. Just to pick on one thing, I'm just going to pick on one thing of what it looks like. There on page 23, from Romans chapter 15, Philadelphia means welcoming one another. You can see the passage there on your page, Romans 15, 1-7. Notice the very last verse, verse 7. Paul says... Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcoming one another. That is a lot more than just someone standing at the door when you walk in who says, hello, if you're on the welcoming team at church. That seems to be what they do. I mean, that's not a bad thing to have, but welcoming means much more than that. Welcoming means helping every person feel like they really belong. Helping every person feel like they really belong so that experientially they know they really are part of God's family and have real sisters and brothers in Christ. And they're to feel that welcome despite whatever differences there are. It helps to realise that in the church Paul was writing to in Rome, there were very significant divisions within the Christian community. In the same church, there were Christians from a Jewish background and those from a non-Jewish background. The Christians from a Jewish background didn't feel very comfortable eating meat that had come from the marketplace. Even though they'd come to faith in Jesus, they felt more comfortable if they kept the Old Testament food laws. But those who were not from a Jewish background didn't have any problem eating that meat. That's the context into which Paul writes this chapter of Romans. And notice what he says in verse 1 on your page. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The strong are those who understand that in Christ, they don't have to keep the Old Testament food laws. It's fine to eat anything as long as it's with thanksgiving. The weak here are the Jewish believers who want to keep the Old Testament food laws. But Paul says, don't please yourself if you're one of the strong who are happy to eat anything. Fit in with the weaker ones to build them up. That's what helping them feel welcome looks like. He gives the general principle in verse 2. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. It's about giving the priority to other people's preferences rather than your own. That's the essence of Philadelphia, loving as sisters and brothers. So you might prefer it if we always pray in English. Well, English is not everybody's heart language who is here. And sometimes we'll pray, like this morning, in Mandarin or Cantonese, putting the needs of others ahead of our own preferences. Philadelphia is pleasing our neighbours to build them up instead of pleasing myself. And Paul gives us the example in verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. Think about what Jesus has done to make you welcome into his family. He gave up everything. So you could be part of God's family. That's how we're to bring glory to God, by welcoming each other in that sacrificial way. Now, of course, welcoming one another in this sort of way, showing Philadelphia in that way, that's not just about church on Sundays. It's about God. That's God's word to us here at the beginning of a week together at annual conference. 
We are family in Christ. Philadelphia is what God wants from us, his children, that we love one another this week as sisters and brothers in Christ. How are we going to do that? This is a big group of people. Maybe you're feeling pretty intimidated already. Well, don't worry. You are not alone. As Sam told us this morning, four out of five people here this morning haven't been to an in-person annual conference before. Most of us don't know what this week's going to be like. So fair enough, frankly, if you've got concerns. Who's going to be friendly with me? Where can I find someone I know? What am I going to do in free time? I don't want to just hide away in my room, but what else have I got to do? These are all very fair concerns. I'm with you. What can we do about it? Well, we can do what we just read in Romans chapter 15. Let's glorify God by helping each other feel welcome in God's family. Put aside your own worries and fears. Put the needs of those around ahead of ourselves. Every single one of us this week needs to work together if we're going to help each other feel welcome. Okay, so you might like to talk. Whoever you end up with lunch with today, you might like to talk about how can I help you feel welcome? What can we do to show interest in each other? Ask each other questions. Don't just stick to the people that you know. Go out of your way to put others' needs, their need to feel welcome, ahead of yourself. So that's one thing I'm going to leave you with, but I thought it'd be helpful to hear some other thoughts from some others about what Philadelphia looks like in practice. So I've actually asked two of our EU senior staff, Laura and Ben, who are going to come on now. I've asked them, I've asked them beforehand, think about what does Philadelphia look like in Christian community? They're going to share some of their practical thoughts and then we're going to finish. Thanks, guys. My name's Laura. I'm part of the staff team. And as we think about belonging to God's family this morning, it's caused me to reflect a bit on all the ways that God's blessed me as part of his family. And there's one experience that really stands out to me, partly because of its beauty, how rich a blessing it was to me, but also because of the way God used it to profoundly change and grow me. And it was a time, um, sort of started a few years back now, where I joined a new church. And I said, okay, I want to join a midweek Bible study group to really kind of make some friends, to get connected and to start to share life together. And so I signed up, um, put my kind of interest in, yes, I want to join a group. And I got allocated to a group that um, was not quite what I expected. I joined the group because one member was leaving and they said, oh, you can take her place. And when I joined that group and took that place, it took the total number of people in that group to three. There was three of us. It was an all-women's group as well, which wasn't something that I'd particularly been looking to join. And I was the youngest person in that group at that point by about 15 years. Now, um, this is a bit embarrassing to admit in a way, but um, I sort of felt like I'd drawn the short straw of groups. I looked around and other groups were kind of vibey. They had more people in them, people closer to my own age. I thought, oh, they're the people I really kind of want to hang out with. I want to know them. I want them to know me. But God challenged me a lot through this experience and it was a rich blessing in knowing more and more what it means to belong to God's family. I was in this group of three women 
And the woman who led it, I think, was a blessing to me because God had taught her what it meant to belong to him and she enacted that in the way that she led. She knew that each of us belonged to God first but it also meant that we belonged to each other. And so what that looked like was as we met together week by week, firstly they were strangers to me but as we got to know each other, we got to know a bit about each other's life. And it was gentle and it was patient It was curious and it was invested. We cared about what was going on for each other. And these other women really modelled it for me. About a year later, another person joined the group and so we, you know, exploded in size to four. About another eight months later, another woman joined. And then just a few months later after that, we got another three and all of a sudden, I feel like we were really thriving, you know. But it wasn't just the numbers that really mattered in the end. It was the fact that we shared life in a really personal and real way. And I think that was probably the, the first time I'd ever experienced that in such honesty. People would come to Bible study and share what was really going on for them. And that taught me more about what did it mean for us to be family together. Family because of Jesus, not because of our own kind of categories and wills. So people come to Bible study. They would say, you know what? Jesus feels really distant to me at the moment. I just am finding it hard to even believe that he's real. And so someone would say, hey, maybe you should read a gospel. Really try and meet them where they're at. And our leader would say, why don't we all do that together, actually? We'll all read the gospel together in our Bible study. Be alongside this sister as she keeps trying to turn to Jesus. A woman would come to Bible study and say, My anxiety is just so severe at the moment. It's making life really hard. And I actually feel like coming to Bible study is just, it's a bit of a straw that's breaking the camel's back. And so she stopped coming for a little while, but we stayed connected to her. We stayed praying with her and for her until she was in a place when she could come back. And I learned at that moment that belonging to the family isn't about how you perform or how you participate in a program but that we're really there for each other and we're committed to what's for each other's good. We had in our group such a variety of life experiences. We had people who had adult children or teenage children or young kids, people who were married, people who were divorced, people who were single, or people who are currently in an abusive relationship. All these differences that um, didn't overlap between us but that we could genuinely share as we met alongside each other. And in this experience, I feel like God really challenged me, the categories that I thought were essential to connect and share in deep relationship. There wasn't really anyone in that group who lived a life that looked the same as mine. There weren't a lot of people in that group who had the same taste in uh, books I liked to read or um, shows I was interested into. We hadn't had the same experiences in life in lots of ways either. But the love there really grew And it came to be a place where I really felt like this is my family. Coming from a family where there aren't a lot of Christians, these are the people I could turn to at Christmas or Easter time. I'd say, okay, I'm going to go spend these holidays with my family, but Jesus isn't in the mix here. Will you pray for me that I can be a witness to them? Will you celebrate with me what God has done? 
They're all different ups and downs that we shared together. But I think as well of one particular moment which really symbolised the way this group taught me about being part of God's family. And it was a Sunday after we'd had church together in the morning, as we did, and one of the ladies used her gift of hospitality and she had us around to share. And we had a lovely uh, lunch together. But it wasn't just that we had this um, really nice lunch, but everyone's kind of hanger-oners were invited along as well. And so women brought their unbelieving husbands to come too. Women brought their kids who'd really struggled or found church an uncomfortable place to come along to lunch. And as people kind of shared life, talked a bit about what they did or what was important to them, what was going on at the moment, all these connections popped up. One woman, she had a child with a special learning need. Another woman was an educational specialist who was able to help her out so that they could get some support. One woman brought her husband, who didn't really want to do any, uh, anything to do with the church, but he fixed bikes for a living. That was his passion. And so he was going to hook up one of the other wives, her husband, with a bike so he could do um, some exercise to get fit after an accident. There are all these ways that life connected and people really invested in meeting each other's needs. And that was beautiful, but the underlying thread was still this desire for what was eternally good for each other. God taught me a lot through that group experience. And I think that's changed me in a big way. As I walk into a group of people, as I come to a conference like Ancon, I might think, I don't know a lot of these people. Maybe we don't have a lot of worldly things in common. But with an open heart and curiosity towards one another, we can truly live out family life. What a, what a beautiful picture. Thanks, Laura. Uh, my, my name is Ben. Uh, I'm uh, one of the senior staff working with EU Focus. Um, I lead that team. Um, I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness and that last uh, passage there, bearing with one another. Uh, and I want to kind of challenge us and show us a little bit through one particular story from the EU Focus staff team that when we can trust one another, one another enough, uh, so that hurts can actually be addressed in love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and it builds more trust. And that leads to a beautiful picture of us loving one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus. Uh, so it was 2018. Uh, the EU Focus staff team was the largest it's ever been. Uh, Ten staff, seven Howies, three senior staff. Now, I should say this is a particular type of Christian community, uh, obviously very multicultural as well. Uh, but I think the principle applies to all our Christian communities and all of us uh, can take something away from this episode um, in the life of this Christian community. Now, pretty early on in the year, some tensions arose uh, over how we're going to structure things in EU Focus. Uh, Jess was one of the international Howies. We had three, really four that year. Uh, from overseas. She was from Taiwan. Uh, she'd been an international student with EU Focus and then stayed on as a Howie. Uh, so Mandarin was her hard language. That still is her hard language, actually. Uh, so we'd started some Mandarin Bible study groups in EU Focus uh, yeah, with, with that language capacity. Now, I decided uh, with some of the other senior staff to keep the Mandarin ministry uh, quite distinct uh, from the rest of EU Focus. And that was to give it freedom to really serve the needs of Chinese students. Uh, 
But, you know, as is often the case, things in the team got messy. Uh, Another Howie, and this Howie happened to be sort of in a dating relationship with Jess at the time. Uh, So he kind of piped up and spoke quite strongly against this idea of, of what he perceived as kind of pushing Jess and the Mandarin ministry um, sort of away from the rest of the team. Now, it just so happened, you know, I said it was messy, it just so happened that at this time, Jess was actually home in Taiwan. I can't remember the exact reason, but she'd been there. I think it was something to do with her family. Um, so that distance also made things worse, I think. It made it seem like we were pushing her away while she was sort of physically distant as well. And then, to add to things, someone else on the team kind of went a bit indirect. Uh, Well, really, they went a bit passive-aggressive, really. Uh, And they started sending messages, uh, requesting meetings with, you know, the evangelism coordinator on the team and the community coordinator, really to kind of show how stupid this idea was to keep that ministry distinct, how it would lead to duplicating a whole lot of communication. Uh, now, I don't enjoy conflict. Um, in fact, I, you know, I really hate it and generally will try to avoid it. Uh, so it was a hard time. But looking back, I'm glad there was enough trust in our community and in, in our team at that point uh, for, for that Howie to speak up and, and others to speak out. And as I you know, prayed and reflected and, and prayed and thought and prayed... I realised that I had unintentionally communicated distance in that decision. Uh, I realised that Jess really did feel like she was being pushed away from us. So at our next team meeting, I apologised and I reaffirmed the fact that we've been talking about this morning, that the spiritual reality is we are actually all one family in Christ Jesus. We're one team, which became a bit of a catch cry for us the rest of that year. We are one family in Christ. And so we tweaked things a little bit so that, you know, that spiritual gospel truth was the thing that shaped our life together. And, you know, the pragmatics of allowing various parts of the ministry to to serve students the best, to serve different students the best, uh, we embraced those pragmatics together as one team, as one family in Christ. Uh, There were other conversations where we addressed the hurts, expressed the hurt that was felt about that passive aggression and where forgiveness was sought and given, yeah, with tears. And in the end, God used it for good to build even more trust in our family, in our team, to deepen our sisterly and brotherly love for one another. And I think that really did help those from overseas. It helped them to feel welcomed, to feel like they belonged to have a family in Christ here while they were in Sydney. So when we're hurt, when there's conflict in God's family, in our our Christian communities, it can be hard. I feel this all the time. It can be hard not to want to withdraw. It's hard to actually lean in, to engage with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to say, I've been hurt, to hear, you hurt me. And to say, I'm sorry, to hear, I'm sorry, to receive and to give forgiveness. But if we do, 
I believe it will draw us together in love, empowered by God's Spirit, as God's family in Christ. May we, perhaps we can even do that while we're here on Ancon together, as sisters and brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Laura and Ben. So it's time to wrap up. So we've talked about a lot this morning. We've talked about Jesus, the Son, who reveals God the Father. We've talked about the nature of God as Father, Son and Spirit. We've seen how our union with Jesus, the Son, we're then adopted into God's family. And we've seen a little bit just to explore what it means then to be part of God's family together. And so there's a reflection wheel there on page 24. I encourage you, if you, just, if you have some downtime later this afternoon, have a look at that reflection wheel and use it to reflect on the, the material we've covered this morning. You can write down something new you've learnt this morning, something for which you're thankful. Maybe write down a question that you'd like to have answered, maybe a personal response to something that we've looked at or something that you think would be good to share with somebody else because all of God's truth is good news and it's good, that means it's good news for sharing. But what we're going to do now is we're going to finish our session with a song.